Previously, on the censor, the infant Hikadov, who was imperiled in the well-meaning but hapless hands of Brother Kaiban, has been rescued by Beska, the wife of Leban the grocer. During his year-long stay with Beska's family, Hikadov is placed in the crib next to Elemaha, an 11-month-old who is dying from a strange disease of the joint sockets. Through some miracle of their newfound friendship, Hikadov heals Elamacha and saves her life. Moments after Beska, Leban, and the brothers of Tel Bathur discover the boon this girl was granted, Beska gives birth to her eighth child, bringing the number of children in her house up to five. She muses now that it might soon be time to return the boy Hikadov to the custody of Brother Kaibin in Tel Bathud. The Censor by Seth Brady Chapter 11 Brother Gomad's Sermon Ten months later, after Elamacha had begun speaking clearly, after the Kotal Beskig returned to the Fertile Rim to destroy an upstart cousin of his, after Leban was grievously wounded by a drunk man's cudgel in a faraway feasting hall, when his and Beska's daughter was named Aesher, Hikidoff would remember something that would not be lost in the impermanence of infancy. He would not remember anything else for two years. For this, he would have but one memory of the house he was nursed in by the benevolent Beska. It was of Aleem, who was nearly two when she toddled on short limbs from her crib to the bed where her father lay. Leban had a red and purple mark on his temple, which did not look too injurious. However, he was moaning all the time that he could off could remember, even as Aleem was showing him a drawing she made in the dust. She was not so proud of the drawing as she was of her new use of her limbs. Leban said nothing, but his hand shook even more as she approached. This meant nothing to Hikadov, but it was distressing to Alim, who took the shaking hands and pulled. When she began to weep, Hikadov held out his proving sticks toward them. He did not have arms yet. In his next memory, he had arms and legs. They were short and thick, meant for the use of children. He did not live in the house of Leban and Beska anymore but in a room that was much older. Kaibin was in that room with him, sleeping in a shelf that lay across from his own. He knew he was meant to arise from the bed and do something, but he was terrified. So, he laid awake with tightly closed eyes, not heeding Kaibin's call to rise. So, the man rose up and pulled the boy out by his legs. It worked against his freshly pierced yanod so that the boy was weeping as Kaibin lifted him to his feet. Hush your mewling! You were awake. You tried to deceive me, Kaiban was hissing into Hikadov's face. Did you wish to pass the time of day in idleness? You are no longer a baby, though you cry as one. I'm so weary, wailed Hikadov. I want to sleep. I do not want to hear that again. Hush your crying before you wake Brother Gendel. He is too old to be woken up so heedlessly. 
At this moment, Kaibin might have guessed that Hikaroff's youth might also be a difficult thing for early mornings, when most of the brothers bestirred themselves and began their labors. The sun was nearly an hour away from touching Gadeska, which was the highest minaret upon the tell. Next it would cast upon the spires until it hit the lowest one, which was beneath the gate. At that time, their labors would be only half finished and they would need to work for another two hours before they must bend to the holy books and study until noon. Then, there would be a midday meal in the low-ceilinged hall near the kitchen, where Hikadoff was tempted to finish his meal quickly and look up upon the illuminated ceiling. While most visitors to the tell were fascinated by the tableau of Yosis harem, the nudes of Tebel, Hedel, Sechel, Kaibel, Gudin, and the abject Dinia below, Hikadoff slowly befriended the enormous turnip man. It was too obvious for most of the brothers to appreciate, so the child would always refer to it in the daytime chores that preceded the meal. That man has such a great head. It is bigger than all the ladies and aught else in the picture. Hikadoff said this while carrying grapes to the mash room with Tobek, who was the youngest brother in the tell. Tobek did agree to this, if only to keep the small child appeased. He kept his attention on the task of carrying the basket of grapes. His head is as wide as the whole room, but his body is so small. This is so. No one I know is shaped like the turnip man. Brother Kaibin has such a great head, but his body is also great. This is so, but it's unkind to say so or think thusly. You must apologize to God and his son, Brother Kaibin. He could have stopped in the passage then with wretched injustice in his chest. It was not in his mind to see Kaibin in such a mocking light. He nearly wept, but he held in his tears. I am sorry to you, Yos, and to my brother Kaibin. Tobek would be castigated if the child was unattended, so he was compelled to stop. He regretted the rebuke, but he also regretted that there was a toddling child in the temple that was always demanding answers to his questions. Looking after Hikadoff was akin to the company of a suspicious magistrate who held one in an endless inquiry. This small official was never content with an explanation because, in his eyes, the context of the event in question always needed to be delved. In consequence, the child would call into detail every question so that one needed to constantly reprimand him for blasphemy. Do not speak the name of our Lord unless you are bid. I'm sorry, Brother Tobek. Keep walking now. Do not tarry in this passage. The two boys continued, along with the questioning. Did our Lord make the turnip man? Of course, he made everything. So everyone on the wall was made by him? Yes, he made everything. Hikadoff turned this idea about in his young mind, which was like an unordered hoard in which a conclusion was only to be recovered by chance. Hidden in there was a terrific ideation which would one day be disclosed by a great hand, the same hand which brought about his miraculous being. Yet, this grand eccentricity that was his birth was unknown to him and by most of those alive on earth. I haven't made anything yet, said Hikadoff and the two were silent until they entered the mashroom and Tobek emptied his basket into the press. Here in the mashroom, Gomad dwelled. 
He was a small brother with large hand and projecting brows, lips, and chins, and he would crush all grapes that were placed before him. When he saw the fruit spill into the stone basin, he hefted the wooden disc that he had been holding ready as a palace guard with a polearm and fit it into the basin. Because the grapes were never overripe, the weight of the disc alone would never crush a single fruit, so he would always sit cross-legged on it. As he brought his compact bulk on top of the disc, a few of the uppermost grapes popped before they all began to be crushed simultaneously. So the little brother would sink into the basin, and he would speak. Oh my, these grapes are falling by too fast. The wine will be sweet, and will give anyone who drinks it a sour head. Do you know why they are likely falling so quickly? It is because they are overripe, as they should never be. That brother in the vineyards overlooked a trellis, and now the sin of his absent-mindedness will be borne by the drinker, who bears two sins at once. Who picked these grapes, young brother? Brother Nafaya picked those, and he gave them to Brother Tobek, and I came along. So it is, and the sins thusly compound on themselves. The leisurely Nafaya waited until his fancy allowed him to attend to his picking, and then he gave these grapes to children, who spent the breath of their task in idle talk. So then is their chore wasted in empty-headed chatter, when it could be enjoyed in silent meditation. Now I sit here castigating children, and soon will the seeds in these grapes break and make this wine so much more unpalatable. So, Gomad got up carefully from the disc, holding both hands on either side so neither side would dip further into the basin. And that would be my method, had I been behaving foolishly. However, as a planter would cut a vine to interrupt a blight, I have stymied the passage of sin from man to man. This is no great secret, because God has disclosed to us the usefulness of our minds. And... As with many other things, the light of knowledge is hidden from the greater part of mankind, and folly will travel far along its course before meeting its terminus. Now there is another basin that thirsts for grapes. Bring a basket from the vineyard, and bring to the vineyard the knowledge of virulent folly. Chapter 12 The Tower So Hikadoff and Tobek left the mash on their return to the vineyards. Brother Gomad is wise, said the child. Tobek smiled at this declaration and said, I don't know what he was meaning to say, but he took a great amount of time saying very little indeed. So Hikadoff laughed and felt the joy of friendship. Is Brother Gomad wise? he asked. Uh, all, the, all the elder brothers in Bathud are wise. So Hikadoff became confused. There is incontrovertible knowledge that Tobek was aware of, but he would say things that are also contrary to this knowledge. In the mind of a child, Hikadoff could also understand that there was something left unsaid so that his friend need not risk the wrath of his elder brothers. And yet, Tobek was frivolous with his words. 
The answer constituted an affirmative, but he betrayed his doubt. The older boy bent his head to the floor and stopped. Hikaroff did not immediately know about this, but the pabo, the archbishop, had happened to overhear them, and he was standing by the corner in the hall. His mouth was wide open and his teeth were disclosed in full, and his eyes were projected from his rumpled eyelids, so that he resembled a starving beggar who was close to losing his human soul. Hikidov pulled his own lips so that he might bung up his sobs. The Pabo Dulyach of Bathud understood that the wrathful aspect of Yos was hidden to children, and he blamed this deception on the behavior of the elderly. Children knew that Yos was the father of all, and so they ascribed the loving faces of their grandfathers to that of God, and were thusly unprepared for the tragedies which must necessarily plague both the good and the evil. Brother Tobek, why did the young Hikudaf need to be reminded of this axiom? said the Pabo. Hikudaf averted his eyes when his name was spoken. Oh, Pabo, he asked me if Brother Gomad, the winemaker, was wise, so I told him that all the older brothers are wise. Ah, but you said elder, not older. To say older would include all brothers who are older than you, but to say elder would imply a class or order in this tell, meaning that all the old men such as myself. Gomad is twenty-two years old. A young man by most accounts, and not an elder by the standards of the tell. The Pabo pulled his countenance back together, so that he did not resemble a monster, nor a grandfather. I, yes, O oh Pabo, I said that, and I did not mean to, meaning I know what you said about, but we are human beings, Tobek. Am I mistaken, or are we unaccountable animals instead? No, Opebo, we are not instead, by which I mean you are not mistaken. We are men, and the older brothers are great, illustrious, wise men. All of them? So, indeed we are great, illustrious, and wise? If so, our mission is misplaced, and we are all mistaken. We are bettering ourselves for the benefit of an uncounting that will never occur. Do you know what I'm saying, Hikadoff? The wind was all sealed inside of Hikadoff, so that he was like a rust-frozen flask. The flask could be open, but the fearful spirit inside would then be heard. The small boy keened softly. Speak, boy. Say any word. Only prove to me that you are capable of speaking. And since the task was so diminished, so were his capabilities. Any word that Hikadoff had learned in his short life was gone from his memory. So he sought the Pabo's eyes. You shall not look at me without bidding, Hikadoff. And yet, Hikadoff would not be compelled to avert his eyes. His fear was supplanted in that moment with all the human speech that he had forgotten, along with new knowledge. Tobek prompted him with a flick of his hand, and the boy then looked away from the Pabo. Now, do as I'm telling you. Say something. Pebo Dulyach, said the boy. You had a great dream last night. If the young brothers had seen the Pebo's face, they would have noticed the change. Did I have a great dream? Why do you ask this, Hikadoff? I know about your dream, O Pebo. I understand that you dreamed about me, and that I would have more knowledge than you can credit, 
In this you have an understanding of me that I have scarcely gathered myself. They were silent for a moment. Sit on the floor here. Tobek, set aside your basket and sit with Hikadov, for it is an auspicious moment to speak at length. Do both of you know about the story of Seja, who was found by King Thudes? No, Opebo, said Hikadov. Yes, said Tobek. Seja, who was the son of Yosa, came to Gudentoig from the land of Irathondon. At the shore, he and his gathered folk met with the nation of Thudes, who themselves were fleeing from another land. Looking upon the people of Seja, Thudes called them the Kasi, which was their word for one who signifies the end of a journey. Thudes had judged the Kasi to be kingless and without purpose, so he looked for the greatest of their men and named Arif, the giant from Irathondon, to be their king. Arif, who was simple, did not rise to the challenge and instead stood motionless and speechless. Then Seja, who sensed Arif's agony, announced to Thudes that their lack of king was a condition of their covenant, for they could not name an authority in proportion to God. So Thudes took offense to this. Because he did not think that a king was necessarily blasphemous, he said to the people of Seja that they were likely refugees from an ordered land that would oust the lawless, and this is why they were lost and come to Gudentoig. Seja conceded that this was the truth, and told of their flight from Irathondon. Arif, who had meaningful dreams but was small-minded, told Seja of his significant dream. In it, a green country was wrapped up in a corn husk as if it were grain, which disclosed ten other husks on one stalk. In his dream, Arif fled the stalk in anxiety, putting two streams between him and it. This signified that the harvest in Irathondon would experience a blight for two years, and that the blight would continue for a decade. The Kasi accepted the fact of this and stored up their grain for two years so that they would carry it with them in a voyage to find a new, fertile land. The story was so piteous that it quelled the king Thud's anger, but it also revealed the nature of the Kasi. He accepted Seja and his people into his new kingdom, for he was having treacherous dreams that seemed to demand a purpose. In it, the earth cracked open from beneath his own feet, and the many fissures issuing forth filled with seawater. The cracks separated each person of his kingdom, so that each citizen was trapped on an island of their own. None of his appointed philosophers could provide a satisfactory meaning to this, and even a few attempted to lie in order to conceal their uselessness. He felt as a murderous ogre being placated by fearful rabbits, and it offended his human sensibilities. Playing their sport, he ordered that they all be killed. Until Seja arrived... No soothsayer could tell him about the truth of his dreams, though he was compelled to punish them for their many failures. So, Seija accepted the penalty should he fail in declaring the dream's meaning. For he was a prophet of God, and told Thudes what his dreams meant. They were a message from God that warned the king that as he stamped his feet and shouted in rage, Every one of his subjects became lost from the comfort of their company and his kingdom cracked apart. The portent was a true one, but it was not one that Thudes wanted to hear. So he ordered to be built a very tall tower. 
The tower was ordained to be as high as the ocean is deep, and the earth about the base should be delved as deep as the tower's height. So was a precipice devised by man, that the condemned Seja stood atop the tower in the bright sun and hot wind, and peered down into a blacker darkness than a nighttime shadow. As he was shoved into the abyss, Thudes commanded that he be lost from God and Dinia both, and that he go directly to the cavern of Shilla, where his death cannot be substantial. Seja fell into the cavern, but the impact of his fall broke the foundations of the tower and caused it to fall into the base of the firmament, carrying Thudes into the void. Both Seja and Thudes survived, though Thudes was lost from his people. So his son, Metinsecha, saw the folly of his father and abandoned the campaign against his people. Availing upon the forgiving guidance of Seja, Metinsecha continued to serve his people and following the mandate of God, named his city Hosebein. Tobek ended his story with a period of silence because then he was conscious of his own voice. The Pabo then acknowledged that the account was over. Very good. Now, Tobek has neglected the homily of this canon, in that it was due to a miracle of God that Seja survived the fall from Thud's tower. But he struck upon the relevant action, that is, interpreting the voice of God from a symbolic dream. As they did for Thud's, our dreams will often communicate God's sermon, but they will also always demand meditation and a disciplined memory. So I have set out to remember every night's dream, and then to make my speech with God so much more illuminated. This is my lot as Pabo, because it is not for the common man or Gentile to speak directly to Yos. The Pabo paused for a moment, allowing for the two boys to interrupt if it was their intention. Before they did, the old man continued, Though I am Pabo, I do not have the ability to interpret dreams. However, I have had significant dreams in the recent weeks which caused me to wake prematurely, much sooner than the light of dawn would appear in the sky. Had it come to me once, it would have been lost in the conscious elucidations of my meditation, but it has recurred and roused me from my sleep often. It is this. The censor is written and narrated by Seth Brady, and the music is made by Noah Pardo. If you'd like to learn more about The Censor, the podcast, please log on to www.thecensor.com or follow us on Twitter at tcensor. Or you can also email me at thecensorpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to hear more of Noah Pardo's music, you can find him on Instagram at npxsound. That's at npxsound. I usually give out this warning, and I would like to make it a bit of a um, tradition, if you would, uh, and I'd like you all to he- heed this, please. While I would be flattered that people would become such fans of this podcast that they would adopt the religion of Yos, I urge you not to do this. Why? Well, there's not a lot of substance to it. 
the people, you know, back in the biblical times really believed that there was a God. They, they had no better explanation for the machinations of earth and the skies. But I, me, the man who has written the, down the name of Yos, I know that Yos does not exist. Nor Baita, nor Dramtor, nor Hikadaf, nor any of the celestial hosts. I know that none of these people are real. So please, if you were to appreciate them, appreciate them merely as fictional characters, not as deities. However, if you are listening, and you are listening all the way through to this point, and you haven't changed the, uh, the track on your uh, listening device yet, I thank you, friends. And even those who don't hear this message, I thank you as well.